Koppel, host of the Time for Coffee podcast, where you get firsthand career advice into the jobs and industries that interest you the most. And before we start today's show, I have a quick favor to ask you. If you haven't already, I'd be incredibly grateful if you give us a rating and a review on iTunes. And if you're like me, you need to do it now because you'll forget later and because it's the best way to help others who may be in search of career advice to find this free resource. So press pause if you haven't done it and do it right now. I'll wait. Thanks so much and enjoy today's show. Hey there, Java Junkies. Welcome back to another episode of T4C. If you're struggling to figure out how to write your resume or your LinkedIn profile, or if you're a journalism major who's just wondering about all the ways you can use what you've been learning in that degree, then this is the episode for you. Because my next guest is a multi-certified executive resume and LinkedIn writer, coach, and storyteller whose documents help clients land interviews. But before I introduce you to Virginia Franco, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's T4C's weekly newsletter that is packed with career advice and insights gleaned from the hundreds of interviews I've done with amazing professionals like Virginia. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four, coffee.org, and the sign-up box is right there. Now, my Java lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated brew because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Virginia Franco, founder of Virginia Franco Resumes, and she is certified in, get ready, master resume writing for C-suite executives, technology writing, career change resume writing, cover letter and thank you notes, as well as LinkedIn profile writing certification. She's also got other certifications. And in fact, Virginia hosts a wonderful podcast all about it called the Resume Storyteller Podcast. Virginia started out her professional journey after college and grad school, working as a social worker and case manager before pivoting into corporate communications and training at Capital One. She then pivoted again into freelance search engine optimization for the web, which is marketing basically, and freelance writing in the travel, healthcare, medication, DIY, parenting, and education spaces. In fact, it was during that time that Virginia started what was then a side hustle, Virginia Franco Resumes. She is also the co-founder of the Job Search Journey, which is the first digital marketplace for job search to provide job seekers access to high quality and highly affordable job search tools from industry experts. I'm sure it's going to be no surprise for you to learn that Virginia is always ranked as among the top job search experts to follow on LinkedIn, in addition to being the recipient of the Career Innovator Award. Virginia, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? I'm very good. Can you speak at my funeral at some point with that? I've never heard my whole life spelled out like that. I hope 
that I never have the opportunity to speak at your funeral. Probably I'll be going first, Virginia. But I know that was a backhanded compliment. Thank you. <laughs> How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm excited. I do not have caffeine with me right now because I drank some early in the morning and I saved the rest of my second batch for the afternoon. I totally get mm-hmm. it. I actually just made myself a second cup as kind of a treat there you go. of today's interview. And uh, <laughs> I was just kind of in the mood. But what do you drink in the Franco household? Depends on how tired I am. So if I'm feeling rested, I'll try herbal tea in the morning. And when I'm not, I do plain old coffee. And then in the afternoon, I love a classic Coca-Cola. I need the sugar and caffeine mixed together. <laughs> okay. You are also a mom of, is it four children? I have four, but they're older now. Yeah. My youngest are senior in high school. So I am soon to be uh, an empty nester or as my friend calls it, a parent of free range children. So <laughs> I love that. I've never. Yeah, I know. I love it too. <laughs> <laughs> so are your older kids in college or have they already no, I have graduated? One that's graduated, one that's a sophomore in college, and then the other two are twins and they are seniors. All right. So you're right in the demo of the Time for Coffee listenership on the parental side. I am. Yep. I've gotten to walk through it. And my first one has his big boy job and his apartment and all of that. So I got to see it through to fruition. And my second one has had a bunch of internships. So Very nice. Well, we're going to start, Virginia, by flashing back to when you were an undergrad at the University of Richmond, majoring in journalism and sociology. Yes. Did you have any idea that one day you would be an entrepreneur specializing in resumes and something called LinkedIn? Yeah, no, I um, and my minor was cultural anthropology. I could, don't think I could have been any more liberal arts if I tried. No, I had no idea. I knew that I loved to write and I loved to learn about people. And I, you know, initially I thought I was going to do communications and went to Richmond, had a ball one weekend and decided I was going to scrap that plan and pick a major that most closely fit to that so I could go there for college. Nice. Did you know what you wanted to do when you graduated from Richmond? I thought I wanted to write for newspaper, maybe copy editing, something like that. And began pivoting pretty much right away, to be honest. I went to D.C. after college and the job I got offered was a copy editor for PR Newswire. If you remember that back when. And it's they still came. it's still around. It's still, OK, so they offered me $12,000, which I could have made work, but it would have meant I would have had to live with my parents in their basement. I didn't want to do that. And so I made a change. I got a job with an association uh, in D.C., supporting marketing PR and communications there. And how did you get your first job, Virginia? I obviously didn't know what the hidden job market was. Naturally, I'm a curious, talkative person. And so I just started speaking to people saying, who do you know? Guys, you know, this is what I'm good at. What, where can I go? And somebody knew somebody who owned or worked in a uh, temp to perm placement agency. And I went for a test and I could type fast and I knew how to, how to summarize documents. And so I got the job. Nice. I also did a temp to perm, but I, I just stayed temp. For that. <laughs> I yeah. So I was perm. there for, I want to say I was there for like a year and a half. I can't. Remember. 
Yeah. So it sounds like you were doing the analog version of networking. <laughs> Very much the analog. Yes. There was no email. It was all phone calls so and when, letters. And letters. Oh my God. Mm-hmm. I remember yes. those. Yes. <laughs> so when did you decide to get your MSW in social work, healthcare, and maternal child health? So about three years after I had been working, I just I felt the desire to to do something a little bit more impactful and had been doing volunteer work. And this, I started doing some career exploration, which back then involved, again, speaking with people and going to the library for information. And I felt like this would be a good move for me. And so I got into the University of Maryland and spent two years and I loved it. Reflecting back, I feel like I used that, the learnings from that degree in terms of my journalism degree. Because so much of it is asking the right questions, uncovering where people are struggling and all of that. And I really learned that in social work. Isn't that fascinating? <sighs> so I noticed that there was a, an entry in your LinkedIn profile that said you worked at the University of Maryland as a social worker, organizing regional and local conferences, doing some marketing while managing casework. Was that an internship? Was that a paid job while you were getting your master's? The way the master's program worked is you did have, you had practicums and those were not paid. But what I was referencing there is I actually got a a position with the university supporting a professor. And so I did all of the marketing collateral for special events that she did and that paid my tuition, basically. But I was always good at writing. That was a strong point. So every role I had, I would jump in and and support their writing needs. When I did case management, I also wrote job descriptions and training manuals. I wrote newsletters and always did that on the side. It's so interesting how often the breadcrumbs that lead us to where we end up show up earlier in our career. Incredible, yep. And we ignore them. Like little, little did I know that my time as an undergrad involved in my college radio station, where I was eventually the news director, were breadcrumbs. I just thought it was something I did for fun. I was a staff writer and then I was a copy editor for my school paper. You then, after you got your MSW, spent two mm-hmm. years as a social worker, case manager, and human resources yes. manager. So a little small <laughs> company. Yet again, many hats <laughs> before pivoting into the financial services world, yes. taking a job at Capital One in corporate communications and training. How and why, Virginia, did you move from social work into corporate comms? So I was doing, my case management involved doing Medicaid hospice work for AIDS patients before all of the good drugs came out. And so I probably went to a dozen funerals in the span of a month. And I was, I I was just struggling with it emotionally, to be honest. And so I said, okay, well, I think that I need to make a change, but I don't want to, you know, I don't want to go back to big old mean corporate America. And back then Capital One was, was sort of in startup mode and the founders were really purpose-driven. The, one of the founders was, he'd been a, he'd been a social worker and the other one had done like counseling and they were really committed to the community back then. And, and they were actually, they had a startup 
where they were uh, launching a division, they needed someone to do training and do communications for this little startup division. And again, I started telling people I was unhappy and this was the parts of my job that I like. And this was the part that made me unhappy. And a friend that I'd gone to school with was recruiting for Capital One and I got the job. Great. Wonderful. Was it a hard sell for you to make that you were a fit for corporate comms at Capital One? Were they looking at you kind of like, ah, social work and this, or was the fact that one of the founders had a background in social work a benefit? So the recruiter knew me. He was a he was a friend of mine from school. And I remember speaking with them and saying, look, I they needed me to build a training table, take build a training team. I felt like my social work skills lent themselves to that. And I knew how to write. And I had sort of proven that over and over. He knew of my work from university days. It was a startup mode. They were open to lots of different fits. And, and you know, I, it wasn't a big ticket job. It was more entry level at that point, And they, they embraced it. I love it. it so a great were, job. I loved it. You were already talking about transferable skills. Without realizing it yet. So you stayed at Capital One for four years and then you pivoted again into full-on marketing, search engine optimization, also known as SEO, and copywriting. You were freelance writing travel articles for USA Today, Hotels.com, Trails.com, and among other things, writing video travel scripts for convention and visitor bureaus, writing education articles for Walden (laughs) University, and on and on. How did you land those freelance gigs, Virginia? I started having kids. And when, you know, went two to four kids, my hours in the day and my priorities started changing. And so I really needed something that I could be flexible with. And I remember starting to explore what what can I do? And Google by then had been invented. And so when I discovered sort of the world of online writing, my very first paid writing job was I wrote the uh, study manual for a nurse's training guide. And I remember sending them a letter that applied online. And I said, I worked in healthcare, social work. I worked with nurses. I've done training guides. I can write anything. And they, you know, they didn't pay me much, but that allowed me to get started. And with each gig, I ex- I went from there to Livestrong.com where I wrote healthcare articles for them. And then Livestrong also owned, they were under this media company that wrote for USA Today and a bunch of those other ones. And so I just, from my home, got to write the coolest articles on the planet. I wish I'd gotten to travel to those places, but they did not let me do that. Well, it's probably better considering you were (laughs) (laughs) raising a a large family (laughs) at the time. But hey, maybe now, maybe now that you're going to be the mama of free range children. (laughs) (laughs) So during this time, You also founded Virginia Franco Resumes. What pulled you into resume writing and that whole space? And how did you begin to become an expert on resume writing? I always wrote resumes for people. I didn't know that anyone did them for a living. When I graduated from college, people, the job, it was a great job market. And if someone was looking, I would just, you know, I didn't really study it, but I figured anything I wrote was better better. I left their documents better than what they started. And so I always did it on the side and people were landing. And as I was exploring online writing, I discovered that people wrote resumes for a living. And I thought, I think I could do this. And so I didn't 
launch officially my own business at that point, but I began as a subcontractor for a few others in my industry that I'm still friends with today. And it was wonderful because it allowed me to practice the craft, start really learning more. I got exposure to all different sorts of industries. And then I did a sort of doing a deeper dive and started earning certifications to boost my confidence. Uh, a couple of years in, I finally felt like I had the experience. And also at that point, my youngest children had gone to kindergarten. And so I felt like I had more hours in the day to actually devote to marketing as well as writing. And so that's when I officially, officially launched my company, got a website, the whole deal. So you mentioned that you got certifications to boost your confidence. Do you think certifications are needed to do something like resume writing? What advice would you give our listeners who may want to explore? So you don't need a certification to write a resume. Um, there are certain industries where certification is an entry that for, to requirement. Some companies, if you choose a subcontracting route, you command a higher compensation if you have a certification. For me, it allowed me to, again, it it cemented my confidence. It, It gave me, it reaffirmed for me that I did in fact know what I was doing, which was really invaluable to me. So how long do they take? Like the the best of the certifications. So, I mean, there, yeah, there's a bunch of them. Some are easier to get than others. The hardest one I got was through the National Resume Writers Association. And that one was a three-part process. Probably took me a couple of weeks, but I had been writing for a very long time. I do know that people that are a little newer to it, it can take them much longer because there's study programs that you have to go through for that. Um, I, I was able to sort of bypass that through my other experiences. As you know, Virginia, our listeners are mostly college students and Mm -hmm. young professionals. So write in the demo of your kids. I know you also write resumes for first timers into the job market in addition to the C-suite and executives. What are the most common pain points that you have observed among the students that you've worked with in terms of how to get started in writing their resumes. So the first thing that I think is the biggest challenge for undergraduates is that they don't, they're not clear on their target. The information that I extract when someone is targeting maybe a role in sales versus someone who wants to do finance and accounting is very different. And it is, I I know a lot of kids feel like, well, I'll just take anything. I'm open to anything. But unfortunately, by remaining open, the documents you write feel they appear more diluted. And so the more clear you can be on your target, the the greater the strength of your resume. The other challenge that I see common to this age group is that they don't consider they don't consider all of their experience or they don't think to include all of it. So they'll think about what did I volunteer for? What were my internships and what were my summer jobs? But they undervalue maybe coursework that they took or papers that they wrote or group projects that they did. And oftentimes those, the stuff that you do in class really aligns with what you're targeting. And so that's one of the, when I do interview kids, I do dive in and ask them, what, what papers were you proud of? What about group projects? What was the topic of it? And so we, that, that sort of allows me to include examples of how they've been able to put their skills into practice, at least theoretically. We're going to get into this a little bit later when Virginia unpacks her process. But the reason that she mentioned when she interviews them is that that is 
her methodology. She doesn't have you fill in a form or do anything Mm -hmm. like that. She spends 90 minutes with you going through your story, asking great questions to help you surface the most relevant information for the types of jobs and industries you want to get into. What do you think are the biggest mistakes that college students and recent grads make, Virginia, in terms of writing their resumes? I'm guessing one of them is they water, end up watering it down because they want it to be one size fits all. So that's definitely one. The second one is what I alluded to earlier, which is that they don't they don't consider any of the learnings or the practices they got as part of their coursework in there. They don't think to include that into their document. Very lastly, it's a taller order for new grads than it is for people that have been in the marketplace a little longer. But try to, when you're thinking back on your experiences, I always ask people to think about what they've been proud of, or maybe think about if if they were able to make an impact in the role and then go about trying to show that. That is much more powerful than detailing your responsibilities. Right. And they're much more, it's much more memorable when you write it that way as well. Show it, don't tell it. Or what, what, what is that? There's like a short Yeah, so instead of saying, I'm just trying, you know, responsible for, I don't know, greeting customers. That's your responsibilities. But if you said that you, I remember someone that I work with that had worked for a restaurant and they had done it for three summers and they had, the restaurant had a lot of repeat clientele. So that recognized this person by name. So we were able to sort of work that into the bullet as an example of their customer service. Your future hiring managers and recruiters want to see that you are about, as Virginia has already noted, impacting the role that you get, that you want to move the needle. So you have to show them that you have that mindset and that you've got a track record. What advice can you offer these young new hires who can't afford to pay an incredibly seasoned resume writer such as yourself, Virginia? What should they do or could they do to help them stand out? So what I would recommend is going through every aspect of their schooling or what they did while they were in school. So that should include your courses, your uh, projects, your volunteer work, your any leadership that you had in the school, any summer jobs, any work you did for free for anybody. And reflect back and ask yourself, what was I brought on to do? What did it look like when I left? And what am I proud of and how did I make that impact? Those questions should provide you with the information you need to write your document. Beautiful. And let's put in a plug for your other company, the job search journey. Do you want to let our listeners know what's available? Yeah, I would love to. So we, I'm a co-founder of jobsearchjourney.com, which is a digital marketplace, sort of like an Amazon or an Etsy for job search. And it contains all sorts of DIY materials to support people in all aspects of the job. And there are several products that we've created for new graduates. So there is, there's resume templates, there's interview scripts, there's some guides to help you navigate the the quote unquote hidden job market, which just means figuring out who you know, who you need to know and how, how to reach out to them, what to say. The documents are 
all created by people that do this for a living one-on-one. Everything we, all the resumes are designed to be written for human, read by humans, but also by applicant tracking software systems. You can trust that the documents have been successful before. Excellent. You, I would say, distinguish yourself as one of the top resume writers in that you call yourself a storyteller in the resume writing space. And I think that's a really interesting frame because when you look at the average resume, you just look at that piece of paper, it seems at first glance to just be kind of the facts. It's not a narrative, but the more I think about it, that's just a very literal way of approaching the document. Could you break it down for our listeners, Virginia, as to how they can actually be telling a story through the positions they've held and the activities that they've engaged in, what they choose to include and what they exclude, right? Because that's as important Mm -hmm. as what you put in to help the employer connect the dots between their experiences and then the job that these hiring managers are looking to fill? So so many great questions. The, what I always think about or try to remember is that a resume is your brochure. It is not a blueprint. So to your point, it does not contain every single detail of everything you've ever done. It is like a highlight reel or a brochure. Think about with a, uh, if you're going on vacation, you don't care about every detail on the room service list. And, you know, instead you're looking at high level amenities and things like that. So the resume is that same sort of guide. In terms of how storytelling comes into play, think about when you go back, you know, as I said, you go through and you think about what you're proud of, how you left your mark and you structure your bullets in a way that tells this is the challenge I was brought in to do. This is the action I took to address it. And this is the result. When you think of your achievements within that framework, that's how you turn responsibilities and accomplishments into little stories. The trick though, is that that challenge action result or CAR framework works really well when you're elaborating in an interview, but with writing, you need to flip how you write it and you actually lead off with the results and then you go into to the other parts because skim readers usually start at the beginning of a sentence and they don't always get to the end. So you lead off with the good stuff, like grew revenues 3% or 30% by doing X, Y, Z. I love that. I heard you make this point in another interview that you did Mm -hmm. on someone else's podcast. And I was like, oh my God, that is such a valuable insight because it's one thing if you're sitting in an interview and you're telling that story with the challenge action result framework Mm -hmm. because you've got their attention. But considering that the average amount of time that a hiring manager recruiter spends on a resume is seven seconds. Put the good stuff up top. I mean, you know, closer to the left side. They might not get to the end. People are, we read these in very skim fashion. And so, you know, when think about how much more powerful it is to read a bullet that says, grew revenues 30% by doing X, Y, Z versus saying responsible for revenue growth, which is, that's just a boring 
boring responsibility. And then the way you'd say it in an interview is I did X, Y, and Z to achieve 30% revenue growth. Yeah. And I love that earlier in this interview, when I asked you about one of the biggest challenges or mistakes that, that students make, and you said it's lack of focus in their resume. So when you have a focus, a point of view in your resume, the story is very clear. So if you're going out for, as you mentioned, a sales role, the experiences that you've had are going to want to fall into a sales-related function. That's right. And then the courses that you list as highlights, you're not going to list your finance courses if you're targeting sales. Everything is within the frame or the lens of what you're targeting. Yeah. I don't know if you're applying to a company that serves a multilingual community, let's say a Spanish-speaking community, the fact that you took Spanish language courses, you're going to want to have that featured right front and center so that everything falls into that story, that you are somebody who can sell, who can speak Spanish, who is motivated, who has had impact in that role. Could you walk us through, Virginia, how you like to work with your clients? I mentioned this a little while ago about how you much prefer to interview them. So how many hours does it take you to write the average student's resume? Can you kind of break down your process? Sure. And my process is a little different. A lot of people do like to ask for a questionnaire or a worksheet and have someone reflect on things from there. And then the conversation is much shorter. I do an in-depth, usually hour and a half interview because I find that A lot of details can get lost in the shuffle when you're writing your own, writing about your own blood, sweat, and tears. And that conversation elicits things that people maybe hadn't even thought about. I interview them and I talk through every aspect of their life the last four years, ask them what they were proud of, ask them what they liked, ask them what they hated. I also ask to see a handful of job postings of interest. And from there, I prior to even meeting them, I highlight a couple of things that I I know I'm going to need to work into the resume and I make sure to cover it. If for some reason we didn't during the course of our conversation, once I have done that interview, I write whatever they need. Most people have me write a resume and a LinkedIn profile. And then we go through the editing process because usually there's a couple of rounds to make sure that they like it. But the other thing that I think is really important, I like to ask people to go run what I've written by people that they trust. I know that everyone is going to have opinions and not everyone is an authority in all of it. But if three of five people say the same thing, then there's something that's worth addressing and we'll edit it. That's interesting. So why do you want them to run it by people who know them? Because you want it to be authentic? Is that... I want it to be authentic. Sometimes people think of something that, you know, they see things from a different light. Now, what I don't recommend is changing your document in response to each and every piece of feedback. Again, I'm looking for common thread. And ideally, ideally someone, usually if it's a kid, they'll run it by their mom, a teacher, and maybe someone that they know that's a family friend that's a hiring manager. So those are three different points of view. And if there's consensus across all three, it's something that I think is worth addressing or at least discussing and then deciding. You mentioned LinkedIn, (laughs) that you also do LinkedIn profiles. Can you talk about the importance of keywords 
you mentioned the applicant tracking system, mm-hmm. which is the the artificial intelligence that will pull out different keywords and flag different resumes for selection. They're important both in resumes, but also in LinkedIn profiles. No, that's correct. LinkedIn is very, very algorithm driven. There are many recruiters that have purchased LinkedIn software to search for people. And then there's plenty of hiring managers and decision makers that just use the plain old version that you and I have to search for talent. There are a couple of places where the algorithm sort of weighs keywords a little bit more heavily than in other locations. So all keywords aren't exactly created equal on LinkedIn. The places where it's really important to make sure you have the right keywords are in your headline at the very top, you know, where next to your picture. In your job titles, if at all possible. And so what I do with that, so let's say your job was customer service rep or something like that. If there are keywords that are part of your job experience there, then I will expand on the job title and I'll I'll maybe do parentheses and, and then list those keywords as sort of descriptors to that job title, if that makes sense. LinkedIn gives you 100 characters on the job titles. And so I use that to capitalize on the keywords. The third section where keywords are really important is in the skills section at the very bottom. The best tool to help you ensure that you are hitting on the right keywords as per LinkedIn's database. Uh, LinkedIn has a great tool called a resume builder. And if you go to your homepage and then you click on, it's a little button. I think it says more right under your picture. It'll say resume tool. And then you type in the job titles that you're interested in and the keywords show up. A little hack, if you do the premium subscription for 30 days free, you actually will get to see more keywords than you would otherwise. So that's a great, great tool to to really boost your keywords. And it, it can make a big difference in, you know, it's one of the keywords are one of the big factors that helps you to be found on LinkedIn. I probably should have asked you this question first, but could you describe to our listeners what keywords are and oh, yeah. where they find them? Okay, so keywords are the words that someone who is searching for talent like you, things that they are going to enter in to search for someone like you. The same way you, when you're looking for something on Google, the terms you use to find it, that's what a keyword is. In jobs, there are keywords as well. There's a couple of places like you can search for them in job postings. There's a couple of tools that you can use as well. Job scan is one where you can you get a couple of free scans. One that's my favorite though is the one that comes with LinkedIn. And what I love about it is the LinkedIn has built a database of keywords. And so when people post jobs on LinkedIn, they include those keywords from that database. So there's there's really strong alignment. Does that make sense? Yes. I'm explaining myself. Well. It okay. does. No, no, no. It totally does. And I want our listeners to know that I was really interested to learn as I was preparing for this interview with you that you were among the first, if not the first, to earn the National Certified Online Professional Expert mm-hmm. Certification. It's a mouthful yes. on yeah. how to write a LinkedIn profile. I didn't even know that existed. So that is through the National Resume Writers Association. It's a nonprofit that supports our industry. I was president at the time. And one of my colleagues, you know, we as a a whole, we felt like 
a lot of us were really good writers, but there's an art and a science to writing about LinkedIn. So this certification actually sort of assumes you know how to write it well, but it teaches you to write with the science in mind. It teaches you a lot about the back end, the search algorithms, the filters, all of that. It's great to use to write, but also if you wanted to coach to provide coaching on LinkedIn job search strategy. So amazing. So how long is this certification? It's a six week program. And then you have to do renewals. You have to recertify every year because LinkedIn changes all the time. Oh my God. I actually would like to do that. It's a great course. Yeah. Tom Pounder teaches it. He, he's a LinkedIn geek. He's awesome. And he offers office hours that I go to every month to to hear what the latest and greatest stuff is. Amazing. We have a Facebook group, all of it. So, Oh, great. Well, listen, I'm going to say this again at the end, but Virginia posts amazing content on LinkedIn. You are definitely want to give her a follow. Could you give our listeners just a couple of quick tips on LinkedIn so that they can kind of boost their profiles in the algorithm. Yes. So first word of wisdom is to complete as many sections as you can, especially your headline, your summary, your about section, your experience section, your volunteer section, your education, and your skills. Those sections will give you what LinkedIn calls quote unquote, all-star status. And that is sort of one of the triggers to help you start showing up in algorithm. So the more complete, the better. The second piece of advice that I would give is that to remember that LinkedIn is a social platform, which means the tone is very different than that of a resume. The resume is more formal. And so the language is a little bit more stilted. LinkedIn is conversational. So it's expected that you write about yourself in the first person, especially in your about section and your experience section. What you want with that is for the reader to read it and feel like they've had a brief conversation with you. The third piece is the keywords that I referenced earlier. And then lastly is engagement. LinkedIn wants you to be on that platform. So engagement means connecting with people, ideally creating or not creating content, engaging on the posts of other people. And if you feel so bold, maybe create posts of your own. But I know that that's a lot to take in all at once. So I always say, start by filling out your profile and building your network on there. And then if you feel like you're ready to take the next step, commenting on the posts of other people. And what you can do is you can look for people that are influencers in the space that you are targeting and just comment, show interest, add a little bit of your take, ask questions. And that that's how you build a community on there. And it can really, the algorithm loves it. And it's a great, great way to turn online relationships into offline connect, you know, offline networks. Amazing. Could you resolve a question that I have, Virginia, in terms of how many people should you be engaging with, let's say on a daily basis, to give you that extra boost? So, I mean, unfortunately, they have never published the uh, get the guide to all of this. So it's all sort of best guesses. And I follow a lot of people that study this stuff. If you spend 20 minutes in the morning and 10, 20 minutes in the evening commenting and maybe reach out to seven to 10 people in terms of building your network. That is 
I think that's a really good start in terms of engagement. Okay. And is it important that you break it up during the day or could you just put in all that time on the front end? You could put it all on the front end. Okay. Yeah. That's good to know. So I just have a few final boilerplate time for coffee questions to ask you. And these are questions that I ask all of my guests. The first of which is, what is the best career advice you've ever gotten, Virginia? The best career advice that I ever got was to make sure to learn from every role that you're in. Even if you hate it, there's always an opportunity to learn, whether it's a new skill or to learn about an industry or a takeaway that you never want to do this again. And so even though as I pivoted from job to job, I did, I remember that advice and I really tried to be intentional about making sure that there was a takeaway from every job. Fantastic advice. And even if it's working for a sucky boss, as I have, yeah, and, and you, yeah. I'm guessing yeah. you have too, and you know, I have no work. Yeah. I don't want to work with that kind of a person again. This informs what I want to do next. Yeah. And one of my sucky bosses was a micromanager. And I was like, gosh, this Mm -hmm. really feels awful to be micromanaged. I am never going to micromanage any of my team members. So just having gone through it is a learning experience. And it's a valuable learning experience. And it's part of your path. Absolutely. Could you share a time, Virginia, in your professional journey when you struggled? Maybe you even failed. I got fired twice in my 40s. Turned out to be unbelievable gifts. But the most important thing here is how you persevered and if there was a lesson that you learned through that process. Yes. And this makes me cringe. And this was when I worked as a social worker slash HR person slash case manager. And we were trying to recruit nursing assistants. And remember, this is before the internet. So we had to put advertisements into the paper. And I convinced the owners that we should do a big ad campaign, which meant a series of ads. And it was sort of like an email marketing campaign, but done through newspaper, which was a lot of money for this small agency. And I convinced them, they gave me the green light and they let me lead it. And I did not review, I did not proof the content as sharply as I could. And there was a big fat typo in it. And you could not change it back then. And they were furious. I was mortified. And so what I did, number one, I immediately apologized to everyone involved. I did not make excuses for why I did what I did. Secondly, I went back to the newspaper and admitted my mistake, let them know how much my mistake had impacted things and asked if there was a way to negotiate a discount for a future ad as a good faith gesture. And they agreed to that. And so I didn't get all the money back, but I was able to at least get something from that. And luckily, even with the typo, it's still, we're still able to use it. It still generated the traction that we needed. But that effort to try to repair such a big mistake went a long way in terms of goodwill with my bosses. Fantastic. What do you think the takeaway lesson was Proof. from that experience? <laughs> Proof, double check <laughs> and, and own your mistakes. 
I think that I know my kids, you know, when they get in trouble, sometimes a couple of them, their first instinct is to make up an excuse or try to shift blame. And I don't, parents see right through that, bosses see right through that. And you get so much more respect when you own your mistake. It's like, ooh, look at you. We love that. We love that not only as parents, but as managers. When you say like, damn, or dang, I really screwed up. I really screwed up and I apologize and it won't happen again. Won't happen again. And I didn't ask for them to fix it for me. I did my best to fix it first. And I think they appreciated that as well. So final T for C question, Virginia, if you could go back to the University of Richmond and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom that you have now, what advice would you give yourself? I had a ball at school. I really loved my experiences. I'm glad I took courses that were not necessarily aligned with any big career path. Like I took women in antiquities. I took crazy classes that fascinated me. But I do regret that I never studied abroad. I feel like that would have enriched my experience. It would have given me a a more global perspective. I'm from Latin America. I'm from Uruguay. So I did have that. But I think studying in in another place would have, again, elevated my confidence in terms of being able to adapt and work and, and study in a new environment. And it would have enriched enriched my perspective. I love that. I love that so much. I did because I studied Mandarin undergrad, do a junior year abroad in Taiwan. And it was a a very weird experience. I I lived with probably one of the few families in Taiwan that in which the parents were divorced or excuse me, separated. They didn't live together. And the mother was a battle axe. Let me just tell you. So it was a kind of a bizarre time abroad, but it was a lot of fun. I definitely... And I lived in Mexico as a kid. Like I said, I'm from Uruguay. And so I had... But that's still sort of the culture that I was familiar with. It didn't really take me outside of my comfort zone. Well, I am sure that your kids are benefiting from you're regretting not having done that. They listen to me. (laughs) So Virginia is the host of the Resume Storyteller podcast. I highly recommend you subscribe and listen. She's also the founder of Virginia Franco Resumes, which is a high touch, 100% customized service in which, get this, 99.4% of her clients land interviews in 60 days. You're also going to want to make sure to give her a follow on LinkedIn. She posts some really insightful and helpful posts on an almost if not daily basis. And she is the co-founder of Job Search Journey. We're going to have a link to it in show notes. It's Job Search Journey, one word, dot com. Virginia, I want to thank you so much for making time for coffee today with me and the T4C community. This was wonderful. Thank you. It was such a pleasure. You asked such great questions and I just really appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening to this latest episode of T4C. 
And if you're interested in learning more about my coaching services for confused college students and recent grads, feel free to check out the Time for Coffee website under the Coaching tab at time, the number four, coffee.org or text me at 202-236-5712. That's 202-236-5712. Thank you.